Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor David Lindell, Executive Ministry Pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Come on, let's give him praise. Let's give him praise. In fact, in fact, before you sit down, because you're not going to want to sit down yet at any campus. Come on, Darren. Come out over here. Come on, Darren. Come on, Darren. So we just pray. We just pray. And who you hear cheering are the people who are gathered around. Darren, tell us what happened. Uh, I came out to get my meniscus healed. Uh, I, <laughs> I hurt my meniscus in the Army in 2007. Um, they literally take out most of my meniscus, so it hasn't been repaired. Um, bending has always been hard to do. And <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so exciting. Oh, he's going to jump off the stage. Okay. Amen. Well, you can grab your seat and as you do, give somebody a double high five because today is part five of times two as we are looking at the life of Elisha. And so here in just a bit, we're going to pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4. But years ago, Becky and I moved into a rental house And as we were unloading the boxes into the garage, our next door neighbor came over. Now, something you need to understand about this neighborhood, a little bit different setup, that there was one mailbox for every two houses. So one brick mailbox with two mail receptacles in each structure. And he came over. And you know, when you're you're moving into a new place, you're thinking, you know, oh, a neighbor, you know, this will be fun. Um, And and he comes over and, and Jim introduced himself And in no uncertain terms, he said that we were never to park in front of his mailbox. And then he left. So we were like, well, we, you know, we we can do that. That's different. Um, I bet, I bet we just, you know, hard candy coating inside though, that sweet uh, spirit. I'm sure it'll come through. So we, uh, we decided, but we can do that. We've got a driveway. We don't need to park in front of Jim's mailbox. And so Uh, which was actually our mailbox too, but that's okay. Uh, We didn't need to park in front of Jim's mailbox. And so we honored that. Well, a couple of months later, we had a a friend come over to the house and and they ended up staying late into the evening. What we didn't realize is that they had parked in front of Jim's, aka our mailbox. And so um, they had been parked there for now hours, but it was the evening, it was dark outside. And and so they were leaving, getting ready to leave about 11.45 at night. So we had a wonderful time hanging out with them at 11.45, but before they leave, we hear, I mean, that is flimsy and incomparable to the knock that we heard on the door. 11.45, so I look through the little, you know, security, the old school security cam, which is the hole in the door. So I look at the old school ring cam, and I see it's Jim. Jim is not a small person, just in, just so you know, not a small person, looks like a person who can handle himself. He looks also like a person who's very upset. And so um, I opened the door, and before I could say one word, Jim unleashed on me every four-letter word known to man. And at the top of his lungs, he is yelling at me. He told me he was going to beat me up. He told me he was going to rip off my legs and feed them to crocodiles. It was just, it was, and that's a slight, just a very small exaggeration. He was very upset. Very upset, so much so that Becky, you know, I'm intimidating, 
but Becky is way more intimidating than me. And so she comes, she comes around and she told him, you know, if you don't, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to call the cops. And so, you know, as she came out, he, he backed away and, and went home. But we were super shaken, not because we were afraid, uh, because my body is a weapon, but uh, we were super shaken just by the experience, by a neighbor doing that, next door neighbor. And so out of that experience, we didn't sleep much, but the next morning I called a friend who is a police officer. And I just said, hey, here's a situation. I mean, he yelled, he said all these words to me, he told me he was gonna you know, beat me up and all of that. I mean, what would, I mean, I don't know. Do you think maybe you guys could go over there? Um, I would, I'm just afraid of what I would do. So like, I, you know, if you guys could go, and he was like, I think you have a choice in your response here. You have two response options. And I was like, okay, what are they? He's like, first one, we go over there. We'll talk to him. He'll know why we're there. He'll know you called. He'll probably be mad. It's like, okay. Okay, what's response two? It's like, response two, bake him a plate of cookies, take it over there, and say you'll never park in front of his mailbox again. It's like, let's go back to response one. Um, <laughs> So we talked it over. We said, let's bake a plate of cookies. Let's take it over. So we went over the day later, cookies in hand, wrapped nice, and knocked on his door. And Jim opened the door, and he was shocked, speechless. And we had the most amazing conversation. He invited us over to his house to eat dinner. Like, all out of a transformational interaction where we decided to respond differently than we initially wanted to. A different response. Here's the thing. The way you respond can be incredibly powerful. That's true relationally, but it's even more true spiritually. That there are ramifications to the way that you respond to things in life, the way that you respond to things that happen to you, the way that you respond to the realities of life where if you would respond a certain way, you would see God do certain things. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, we are going to look at something that may be shocking to some of you, but I'm going to preach to you from this subject, the response that raises the dead. The response that raises the dead. Why? Because we serve the God. And I only actually heard like two of you clap in here. Um, the response that raises the dead. Because... Here's the thing. I'm not talking about, hey, one day the dead in Christ will rise. Praise God for that. We actually serve the God who raises the dead today. Wants to raise the dead today. Acts chapter 26, verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Okay, Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. Matthew chapter 10. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Paul, Romans chapter 4, God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. He's the ex nihilo God, the out of nothing God. That's how the universe was created. He can do a miracle out of nothing. He doesn't have to have a heartbeat, church. And here's what we're going to do as we go to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to look at a story that challenges the way we view the impossibilities of life. We're going to look at a story that's going to challenge the way we view the impossibilities of life. And here's what I would tell you. Every time you open God's word, it should challenge you. 
Every time you open the Bible, it should form and reform the way you view every aspect of your existence on this planet. Everything. It should form and reform the way you think about your relationships and your work. It should form and reform the way you think about time and money, the way you think about friends and family, the way you think about life, and yes, dare I say, even the way you think about death and the finality of death. And in this passage, we're going to meet a woman, and it's her response seen in three layers. It's her response to the situation she encounters that God works through to raise the dead. Second Kings chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. One day, Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed by that way, he would stop there for something to eat. Home-cooked meal, very important. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. Now, this is not just the writer of 2 Kings introducing a cast of characters. He is telling us something important about this woman, that she's a godly woman, and that godliness is evidenced by her care for Elisha, by her generosity toward a man who's in full-time ministry. Here's something you're going to see throughout the scriptures, that anytime somebody is actively generous toward those who are serving God in full-time ministry, God blesses them as a result. It introduces a blessing into their life when they do that. When you fast forward, we're not going to take time to look at it, but in 2 Kings chapter 8, she's facing a very intense situation, and it's her relationship and her generosity toward Elisha that paves the way for God's blessing in her life. And it's true for you. It's true for every believer that as we honor those who are serving the Lord in full-time ministry, he honors us. This is the setting, but you, the writer wants you to understand this is a godly person. And now we're going to look at the rest of the story in which she provides three responses to a situation that God works through to raise the dead. And the first response is this, hope for the unimaginable. Look at 2 Kings again. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, his servant, what can we do for her? In other words, she's been so kind to us. How can we bless her? Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. When the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood there in the doorway, next year, at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, do not deceive me and get my hopes up like that. These verses in this, that are contained really within this first response are insightful in terms of helping us understand how hope is restored in any person's life, how hope for the unimaginable is birthed in a heart. And the first insight about what you see here is that Elisha gives voice to the hope that he believes God wants to restore in the life of this woman. He speaks words of hope over her life. 
Here's the thing. You can tell by the way she responds that at one point, this hope was very real to her. At one point, this dream was just on the, on the horizon. She was right on the cusp of having a baby. And yet, we don't know all the things she faced, but what we do know is that there were too many false alarms, too many close calls, too many miscarriages, too many, maybe this is it. And after one too many, she let hope die. After one too many, she said, I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm done with that. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done thinking about that. I'm done dreaming about that. And yet God brings Elisha along. And Gehazi has this idea, and Elisha realizes in a moment, okay, that's not just an idea, that's a God idea, and he steps out in faith to give voice to it. Very gutsy. But God wants to do that through every one of us. There are situations and interactions you walk into, and all of a sudden God plants something in your heart. And you see that it's the epicenter of where hope has died in that person's life. And guess what, church? You can be the one who sees that hope restored in an instant. You're like, well, I can't even imagine how that would happen. She couldn't either. It was hope for the unimaginable. And yet, even as we read this, for some of you, I realize this makes you a little bit nervous. It's like, well, Elisha, is that, is that really wise? I mean... Should you, should you get her hopes up like that? Is, is that really what we should be doing? And the problem is, you're, you're more comfortable giving people a reality check that lowers their hope than you are speaking words of faith that get their hopes up. That's a problem. In any one of our lives, if we're more comfortable telling them why it won't happen than why it will happen, then something is wrong on the inside of us. Elisha had no plans on saying this to her until Gehazi gave him the idea, and he recognized, okay, God is in this, and he was sensitive enough in that moment to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going to step into this. Here's the question for you. Are you sensitive enough to the voice of the Holy Spirit that when he drops something in your heart that's as audacious and unimaginable as that, that you'll say, okay, God, I'll do it, and you speak hope into a situation? Hope. Hope for the unimaginable. And there are some of you today, and you've walked in here, and there was hope in your heart for the marriage, and there was hope in your heart for your lost kids, and there was hope in your heart that the addiction would be gone. And at some point, you let that die. And God's word to you this morning is that he wants to raise that hope back up in your life. But even more specific than that, more specific than that, as I was preparing, as I was praying about the message, there are couples who have come into this room. They've come into every campus, to West, to North, to Joplin. You're watching online today, and you've been told it is medically impossible for you to have a baby. And the word of the Lord is to you at this time next year. You will hold that baby in your arms. Hope again! Hope again! It's hope for the unimaginable. You know what Jeremiah 29, 11 says? Listen to this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and future. 
hope in a future. And then go back to 2 Kings chapter 4. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at, the time, at that time, the following year, she had a son, just like Elisha had said. It starts, the response that raises the dead starts with hope for the unimaginable. But it doesn't end there. It progresses to belief during the unthinkable. Belief during the unthinkable. Let's look at this. Back to 2 Kings. One day, when her child was older, he went out to help his father who was working with the harvesters. So we don't know how much time has progressed, but we know it's enough that he can do like a day at work with dad. You know, I love a day at work with dad. I love when my kids want to do that. It's so much fun. So he's out there. They're, they're doing the harvest. It's hard work. He needed his son's help. And so, you know what? It's, it's, I would say this. It's long enough for memories to have been made. It's long enough for them to have celebrated some birthdays. It's long enough for what was once a dream to sink in as a reality. It's long enough. But then we read this in verse 19. Suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. So the servant took him home and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. And she carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Then shut the door and left him. All of a sudden, the dream has become a nightmare. All of a sudden, the heart that was so full is aching. She's holding this baby in her arms, who's now a little boy. And it's the same woman who said years ago, don't toy with me. Don't deceive me. Don't get my hopes up. But even though she is holding that boy in her arms, she doesn't stop there. She doesn't just sit in the living room. She goes upstairs and she lays him on the bed of the man of God. She's about to do some things that make no sense without belief. Look at this. We're going to go to the next verse. She sent a message to her husband saying, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Why go today, he asked. It is neither a new moon festival or a Sabbath. So he's saying there's, there's no religious reason to go, like no spiritual reason to go right now, right? He's just a little confused. But she said, it will be all right. Now she's going to say that phrase two times, exactly the same phrase. She's going to say it again in verse 26. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that, that's dishonest. That's a lie. It's not a lie. She didn't say he is all right. She said it will be all right. It's a belief statement. Here's the thing. You believing God is not denial of the present situation. You believing God is not saying, oh, there's no, there's no problem. Don't look over here. There's no problem. That's not believing God. You believing God is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I serve the God who calls things that are not as though they are. I serve the God who raises the dead. I serve the God who brings death to life. I serve that God. I serve that God. This is a belief statement. She says, oh, no, 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 no. 
husband, it will be all right. She's not denying reality. What she is choosing to do is not allow the pain of the present to become her lens for the future. What keeps a lot of people from believing God like this is that the pain of the past is bigger to you than the promise of God for your future. The pain of what you've dealt with, and I'm not, here's the thing, I'm not saying the pain doesn't exist. I'm not saying you didn't go through that. I'm just saying you cannot allow the pain of what you've been through to become the lens through which you look at the rest of your life. You know what? God has big things for your future. There's a promise of God for your life, on your life, and even for the pain in your life. Do not allow the pain of the past to become the lens and become bigger than God's promise for your future. Some of you have done that. You've walked in today and you're like, David, as we talk about the unthinkable, as we talk about the unimaginable, I just don't know that I can go there. Can I be bold enough to say to you that the reason you don't want to go there is that your pain is too big to you and God's promise is too small. She chooses to believe the promise. She chooses to believe God in spite of what she's facing. If you're ever going to see God do big, huge miracles in your life, you're going to have to say, God, my focus will not be on my pain. My focus will be on the God who's made me a promise, and I will choose to believe him in spite of everything. I will look to him, and I will trust him, and I will say he is my hope, and he is my salvation, and nobody will convince me otherwise. This is her response. The pain of the present and the pain of the past will not get bigger to me than the promise of my God for my future. It will not happen. So, why doesn't she tell her husband? All the husbands in here are like, what? Trust the man. You know, like, she doesn't, she's not doing that. Why is that? We need to address that. It seems that the reason is she knows if she tells him, he's going to tell her to plan a funeral instead of a resurrection. If God has put something in your heart, if hope has risen, and you are believing God for a miracle based on his word, you need to be very careful who you share that with. You need to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who will believe with you, not against you. You need to make sure you surround yourself with people who will remind you of the promises of God's word, not the pain of your past. Get yourself in a circle with believing people, with hope-filled people who can speak truth to you in the midst of your pain and can speak truth to you in your present, who can speak truth to you from God's word, who will tell you the best is yet to come and God wants to put his power on display in your life. Surround yourself with people who bolster your hope and push you to believe. Because it's her belief, that response of belief, that paves the way for faith. Faith for the impossible is the final response we're going to look at. It's faith for the impossible. 
And yet I realize some of you are like, well, a little bit redundant there. If I could just give you a little feedback. Faith and belief, synonyms. So maybe think of a different word next time you come to point three. Here's, here's what we need to talk about. Because I think a lot of people view it that way. I think a lot of people say faith, belief, same thing, but they're not. Faith and belief are not the same thing. Belief is, belief is knowing that God can do something. Faith is the conviction that God will do something. Very different. A lot of people believe in God, but they never exercise any faith in their situation. A lot of people believe God exists, but they never exercise faith to ask him to save them. Faith and belief are not the same thing. The Bible says the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble, but they don't have any faith in Jesus. Faith and belief or belief and faith are not the same thing. Belief is a step toward faith. That as you put your faith into action, the Bible says faith without works is dead. Faith's got to have action. And belief is meant to propel you toward the activity of faith. Oh, to believe not just that God can, but have faith that he will. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 24. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. But when she came the man of God, to the man of God at the mountain, she fell on the ground before him, caught hold of his feet. Then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up. What you're seeing in the words that she says tell you this is real life. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. These are real people. This is a real mom right here dealing with the real tragedy of losing her only child. You're seeing the well of human emotion rise up. And some of you know that all too well. There's emotion here. This is real to her because once again, faith is not the denial of the problem. It is a different perspective on the problem. Faith is in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty, saying, God will be my portion and God will be the one that I trust and God will make a way even where there seems to be no way. God will. She is convinced. How do I know? This is a woman of great faith. So even though there's pain there, don't mistake that for unbelief. This is a woman of great faith. She's already taken her child and laid him on the bed of the prophet instead of burying him. This is a woman of great faith. When her husband says, is everything well? She says, it will be. In verse 26, when Gehazi comes and says, is everything okay? She says, it will be. Why? Because she knows he's the God of the turnaround. She knows no matter if it looks like life has thrown her a dead end, and some of you are looking at a dead end, and here's the thing. Resurrection is, it, it starts with a dead end. It starts with a dead end. It, some of you, as we're talking about God raising the dead, 
You need to come to terms with this. God can raise the dead, which means he can do anything else. But he is the God who raises the dead. He is the one who makes a lifeless heart begin to beat. She knows that. That's why she saddles the donkeys. She knows that. That's why she's at the feet of the man of God, because she knows something can be done and something will be done. She knows this is a woman of great faith. And in the passage, she's about to be contrasted with somebody else. Because here's what Elisha says. Look at this. Then Elisha said to Gehazi, his servant, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. Gehazi hurried on and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him, the child is still dead. We're going to look more at Gehazi in the coming weeks. But needless to say, Gehazi is a man who's around the most powerful spiritual leader of his day. He serves right next to him. And yet he's a spectator in terms of God's activity and God's power. He's just in the bleachers eating popcorn. He's completely unaffected. He's seen miracles already, and he's going to see more. But they haven't moved his heart. They haven't caused faith to rise in him personally. And can I say there are some, and you're watching at another campus, you're watching online, you're sitting in this room, and you've seen Parkinson's healed, and you've seen legs lengthened, and you've seen spines straightened, and you've seen cancer disappear. And you just saw somebody healed in this room today, and yet it hasn't moved you one iota. You've seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, you're just in the bleachers eating popcorn. And part of you goes, I don't even know if that's actually true. I saw it, but I'm just not sure. That's Gehazi. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. The reason that God does miracles is always to bring himself glory and to build our faith. It's the reason God does miracles. He does it to bring himself glory and to build your faith. He is showing you the reason that you've been in a room where somebody was jumping up and down who couldn't a few seconds earlier is it was meant to build your faith. To build your expectation. Why? Because he's going to put you in the path of people who need to know there's a real God who does miracles. He's going to put you in the path of people who wonder, is this God real? Does he really work? Is Christianity true? And you're going to be able to say, oh, let me tell you, he's built my faith. Oh, I've seen him work. I've seen his power on display. I saw it this Sunday. I know the man. His name is Darren. God healed him in the room. And he's healing hundreds and thousands more. It's true, but that's not Gehazi. That's not Gehazi. He's seen it all, and he's cold. And as he comes back to Elisha, I can just imagine him going, he's walking back. 
And he's saying, well, I guess it just wasn't God's will. Guess God didn't want to do that. Because if it was God's will, it would happen. The problem is, we're going to read the rest of the story, and it is God's will. And there are some, and you've contented yourself with saying, well, I guess it's not God's will. I guess God just didn't want to do that. I guess God just doesn't want to heal them. I guess God just doesn't want to heal me. Is it always God's will to raise the dead? No, it's not always God's will in this life to raise the dead. But it is in this case. And I believe this story demonstrates that it is in more cases than we dare believe. That God's will is for you and I to approach situations differently than the way the world does. Where the world sees a dead end, we see potential resurrection. I'm talking real life resurrection. I'm talking about a boy laying on a bed in a house miles away and Gehazi comes to Elisha. And here's the question. When Gehazi comes back and says, Elisha, you told me to go take the staff and it didn't work. What is Elisha going to do? Look at Elisha's response. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead. Lying there on the prophet's bed, he went alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up walked back and forth across the room once, and then stretched himself out again on the child. This time, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother, he said, and she came in. Elisha said, here, take your son. She fell at his feet, bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Come on, that deserves applause. That's the God of miracles right there. That's the resurrection power in real time today at work. I want you to notice something. Elisha prays, then he lays down on the boy's body, and it says the boy's body began to warm. But then he goes back and he's pacing in the room. And he lays down again. You know, just like Jesus with the man who prayed twice over him, Elisha's doing the same thing here. Saying, okay, I see signs of life. I see progress. Here's the thing. There's a place where faith perseveres in prayer. I don't know what Gehazi did, but I can imagine him laying the staff, picking up, going, oh, nothing happened, walking away. Elisha says, I'm looking for signs of life. I'm looking for progress. I'm looking for the miraculous power of God to be present in this situation. What is he doing? How is he working? I'm cooperating with it. And then I'm pressing into that to seize the moment by faith. Here's the thing, church. God is looking to raise up men and women who will press in by faith. 
Men and women who will not be deterred by the world's narrative. Men and women who will not be deterred by what they've seen or what they've experienced in the past. Who won't say, well, my pain has taught me this. And, you know, I've been through the school of hard knocks. How about I've been through the school of faith? I'm following Jesus. And where he's called me to go, I'll go. And what he's called me to do, I'll do. And he said, heal the sick. And he said, raise the dead. And he said, cast out demons. And I intend to do it in Jesus' name and for the glory of God. I intend to be a man and woman in my generation that sees what generations before haven't seen and where God does things we haven't seen him do because he gets the glory, church. He gets the glory.